once upon a time, Keith and I were going to do some sort of challenge of like you know, create have someone create a game show where we just had to name identify Division three football coaches kind of head to head until someone dropped or something. And then we had, you know, 18 months without Division three, basically. And I kind of forgot a lot of things. Good name. Give me a give me a school. Oh, let's do um, Simpson. Oh, Simpson's easy. Matt Jeter. I just I just talked to him on the phone like last week, and I'm not usually that. That's like Dave Mc, Dave McHugh would say. Oh, I just talked to that guy. Like, and he would be correct for me. I don't usually just pick up the phone and call coaches, but I did that time. Oh, let's do one more. I'm gonna give you uh, Wisconsin Lutheran. Uh, all right. This Wisconsin Lutheran is not still Dennis Miller, right? Well, at least I know they're in Region Five. <laughs> Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman and Greg Thomas. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 288, season 15, episode 10. It's the podcast for October 4th of 2021. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I am the Around the Nation columnist. And Pat, you know, we're in the part of the season now. We're five weeks in. Injuries are starting to mount up a little bit. Health is an issue. And we have to take a next man up philosophy. Um, we're doing it here at D3Football.com. This week, we, we do it every week in quick hits. We have a guest panelist, next man up. Last week, we had a guest uh, features writer, Riley, Riley Zayas. And so, yeah, it's everybody's chipping in. Everybody's doing their job. To keep uh, to keep the train moving toward the postseason, you know who I would uh, recommend to be a guest panelist sometime might be this guy Keith McMillan. We see if he uh, might uh, jump in and be a guest sometime. What are his bona fides? We're gonna have to check that out. I was told not that long ago that it's not bona fides; it should be bona fides, and I just uh, thought it was like, well, I guess so. I mean, that's the Latin, right? But uh, I I had always said bona fides myself. His credentials. His credentials. And I'm Keith McMillan. He would say he's the yin to my yang or the chocolate to my peanut butter. I don't think he ever said that, but he probably should have. Um, I, I think that would have been okay. Would have been all right with that. Um, I have no idea what Keith would be all right with. But, uh, you know, once upon a time, he sat in that chair for about 270 some of these uh, podcasts. So we should just try to drag him back in as a guest. I think that would be kind of funny slash cool sometime when Randolph Macon has a big game. The week that was in week five, we entered October. We had a big game between two ranked teams. We had a game that uh, threatened to be a rematch of a pretty cool game from a few years ago. We had a game that we really needed to see out of the uh, southern portion of the country. We had a bunch of other games all over the country that we want to talk about. Also, coming up a little bit later in this podcast, we'll be talking with... Mike Sirianni, he's the head coach at Washington Jefferson. He's the guest in our tight five. If you didn't get the tight five reference, it is a, this is a reference to uh, if you are a stand-up comedian or a prospective stand-up comedian, you have, you're going to put together this uh, tight five-minute package of uh, comedy that you're going to take to some open mic night or whatever in order to try to get a regular gig. We're trying to boil down this whole interview into five minutes. Each of them so far has been literally five minutes and zero seconds. I try to do my part by asking the questions in as succinct a manner as possible. And I got to say, Coach Sirianni did a great job uh, when we called him this afternoon at halftime of the Philadelphia Eagles game because he's watching his brother, who's the head coach of the Eagles. And uh, I explained to him the concept and he gave me not only concise answers, but quick ones too. It's like his... Cadence was really quick, and I was super happy about that. So if you again, if you're trying to be the person who listens to this on a super fast-forwarded uh, fashion, you're not going to be able to do that because he's very, very, he's very concise. I enjoy that. I'm always glad that we've done these two things now, where we've just uh, contacted coaches like in the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday. Coach Gil Martin last week was uh, at his team's uh, at his program's JV game, and uh, you know that sort of thing. So. We're flying by the seat of our pants here in season 15, but uh, going uh, going to the actual games that were actually played, we've been anticipating, 
Well, first off, we've been watching the teams in the Liberty League kind of roll up wins in the non-conference schedule, right? Uh, we've watched Union do this. We have watched RPI do this. And we've watched Ithaca and Hobart do this. Like Ithaca with a win against Brockport a few weeks ago that seemed pretty significant at the time. Uh, Hobart maybe slightly less tested. And, you know, this game uh, was a game that we got to watch quite a lot of, and it uh, it lived up to its billing, I think, between number 17 and number 21. That's our poll, right? 17 and 21? Yeah. That is correct. Yeah, this was the first game in what looks like a four-team round robin for the Liberty League title. That is harder to say than you think. Um, you know, that game really lived up to our idea that the Liberty League has four pretty evenly matched teams. The first quarter was a stalemate, but then Ithaca broke through in the second quarter. They scored the first two touchdowns, and they went ahead 14-0. to zero. Here it looked like maybe Hobart's 4-0 start against a not-so-strong schedule was a little bit suspect, uh, but the Statesman ripped off the next 21 points of the game to go ahead. They got some big plays from Rayshon Boswell. He's a really fun player to watch, by the way, including a 70-yard run that tied the game. Ithaca tied the game at the end of the third quarter, setting up some drama in the fourth quarter. Ithaca's A.J. Wingfield completed two long passes on a quick three-play 78-yard drive, and that 30-yard touchdown pass to Andrew Vito felt like it was slow motion out of a movie. That thing hung in the air forever. Um, fell right in the bucket, though, for a bomber touchdown in the back of the end zone. I was watching that. Uh, you know, Right before that, the pass to Anderson, 44-yarder over the middle, was was a... I mean, not a not a bullet. It's a Division three bullet, I guess. It was a it was a great pass. It was nicely done over the middle. And yeah, that ball to Vito, I don't quite know how that ended up in his arms because that had uh, that I've seen punts with less hang time for sure. Yeah, in the in the box score, you go back and you see that that was a thirty yard play, but that that pass looked and felt like it was forty to fifty yards in the air. It was the great circle route, right? Oh, it was it was it was high. No way, too high, too high. It was it was a rain the rainbow the rainbow shot there. So that got that got Ithaca the lead in the fourth quarter. They're up twenty eight to twenty one, and then Hobart has a final drive. They get into scoring range, uh, but then David Cruson had the ball slip out of his hand on a pass attempt with ten ish seconds left. Uh, he picks the ball up. He scrambles around. The Ithaca contains the play inbounds, and then the last couple of seconds tick off. For Hobart, they don't get another play. Game ends 28-21. Ithaca stays undefeated. Hobart loses the Liberty League opener. But this is this was a really fun game to watch. It was competitive. It was back and forth. You had late drama. All of the things that you want in high-stakes conference games. So I'm watching that game, too. Um, and when Krusen loses the handle on that ball... All I can think of, and then he chooses to scramble around with it. All I can think of is that he must have thought that he was no longer allowed to throw it. Is that that's the only interpretation I can really take for why he then kind of ran the last uh, ten seconds or so of the game off like that? Because I mean, he, I don't think the ball went forward. I believe the ball went backward. Uh, if the ball had gone forward, right, then they would have whistled it dead as an incomplete pass, and then he would have known he would not have been able to pass again because the play would have been over. I don't know. I just felt like. That was um, it was interesting to watch how those seven seconds developed uh, at the end of the game. And again, kind of in kind of plays back in slow motion in your head as you think about it. Yeah, I'm watching that play and the whole time. I'm like, man, you're not going to make it. You are not going to score running this. You need to throw that thing away and take one more play and one more shot to the end zone. And he just didn't throw it again. And I don't you know, who knows? That's high pressure situation. Maybe you sort of lose track of where you're at and what time it is. Um, yeah, you know, it's easy to, easy for me to say, throw that thing out of bounds and get one more play. But, um, you know, it was it was a kind of a crazy end to, to what was a really good football game in the Liberty League. And the play they had called, too, looked like it was going to be, uh, it might well have gotten him in the end zone as they were uh, trying to throw back to the left side. Uh, so Hobart falls to four and one. They drop from 21st to 25th in the poll. It's the first of many games in the Liberty League that are going to, you know, determine how that automatic qualifier, that automatic bid to the NCAA playoffs gets handed out. So we had another uh, big game that uh, got a lot of interest and uh, this game between Warburg and Central, you know, this uh, the game that, uh, you know, previously 
is this the last time around, or at least the 2019 version, right? Because Warper didn't play any games in 2020. I remember both of them got canceled because of COVID. Um, you know, one team gets out to a big lead. Central comes back and rallies and rallies and rallies and rallies and finally wins the game in super dramatic fashion. This, uh, this was not that. Yeah, in 2019, Central was up 49 to 14 in the second half of that game. Wartburg came all the way back and took the lead, actually, from 49 to 14 down. They took the lead in the second half. Central, in their part of the overtime, scored to match Wartburg's touchdown in overtime, went for two, one, dramatic. It might have been, it might have been the, certainly, I think, the, game of the year for regular season 2019 North Central Mount Union might might have trumped that game in the playoffs um but that was a crazy game this year Central jumps out to a 21 to 3 lead over Wartburg and they never let the Knights back in the game they steadily pulled away they ended up winning 49 to 24 Blaine Hawkins did have to play all four quarters this week but he did have a very very efficient 21 out of 29 performance he threw six more touchdowns Central is off to a great start in 2021. They're up to number 11 in this week's top 25. And Blaine Hawkins is having the kind of statistical year that we might talk more about in December. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would not, uh, I would not dispute that at all. Um, the uh, Warburg was driving. Uh, they were down 14, three. It was a few minutes left in the second quarter and then, and then they get stuffed, right? And and Central comes back, drives the other direction. They make it 21-3. Warburg does come back down and score uh, on the final play of the first half to make it 21-10. Anyway, I am watching this game and listening to the guys in the booth talk. Play-by-play guy, uh, who's uh, Todd Castle, I believe. Last name is definitely Castle. Your first name is now Todd, sir. I hope that's correct. Anyway, he's talking about, you know, he's talking about the 2019 game and how, you know, because this sort of thing happened last time, et cetera, et cetera. And the color analyst is a coach and the coach is like, you know, you, you play, you media types are all, all alike. It's just because something happened last time. Doesn't mean it, it, it's going to happen again. doesn't mean it affects what's going on now. A, I'm going to be the media type, I guess, to dispute that. It's, it's not that it can happen. It's not that it will happen again. It's just a reminder that it did happen and therefore it can happen. Not only is it possible, it has actually effing happened right here in this place, right? So I'm just, you know, I'm going to take the media guy's side uh, and I, I'm, I hopefully I've uh, relayed this discussion between them accurately. I do remember in 2019 listening to that game and the, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it was the same crew this time around that called the game in 2019, but I do distinctly remember the highs and lows that that booth went on in that game for central in 2019. It was it, that was it was as entertaining as the game itself. Yes, he is in Central wins on a two-point conversion in overtime. Central, as you mentioned, up to number eleven. This is um this is pretty heady, heady territory for an American Rivers Conference school, and we'll see how that continues to develop. Um, I'm gonna have to rely on you to talk about this uh, next game that uh, we want to discuss because while. Trinity and Barry were playing. I was on stage singing backup literally for the Eagles. So I am just going to drop that in there because I'm still flying high. I'm still taking it easy. I've still got a peaceful, easy feeling. I'm still, you know, the new kid in town. I am still taking it to the limit. I, I'm, I'm already out, um, but uh, I, I could check out, but I can't leave. So I need you to take this game. Sure. You know, Trinity's point totals through their first two games are sort of what stand out when you look at the at the scoreboard on Saturdays. But it's really uh, Trinity's defense that is the hallmark of this year's team, I think. And Saturday night, it was really Trinity's defense that came out to the forefront. That Tiger defense, they've allowed less than 200 yards of offense in three games. Not in total in three games, but per game, they've less they've allowed less than 200 yards of offense and they've a maximum of 233 yards to Texas Lutheran. Um, and it was really that side of the ball that dominated Barry, the Vikings, they were limited to just 54 yards of first half offense. They only took three snaps in the entire game in the red zone. Two of those were field goal attempts. Um, Trinity really controlled the game from start to finish with their defense. 
They got two touchdown passes from Tucker Horn in the first half, and that was really all they needed. They added on a couple more touchdowns in the second half, running the ball. Um, you know, Barry was never really in this game, and you know, got to give some uh, some props to Trinity for going all the way out to Georgia and winning that game. That's a big SAA test for them. Um, the next big test for Trinity's defense might not be until they go all the way out to Birmingham in November to take on Chris Shuford and the Birmingham Southern Panthers. Um, for Barry, they've you know we talked about them last week. They challenged themselves with that road trip up to Whitewater. They're two and two now. They're not out of the SAA race, but they may be working through some youth there uh, at Barry, particularly uh, with three sophomores and a first-year student athlete on the offensive line. Um, Barry's in playoff mode now with the rest of a challenging SAA schedule left to play. 27 to six, the final in that one, uh, another game going on in the afternoon that just kind of didn't get a chance to really check in on it. I'm just, it's one of those, I, I was doing scoreboard duty during the afternoon on Saturday and I had literally tiled like 12, uh, you know, 12 sidearm live stats tiles. And one of them is FDU Florham against Widener. And I just never had an opportunity to click in and watch the game, but I just watched the score keep going. And at one point, you know, uh, uh, you know, 10, nothing. And then like, and then they have 24 points. And I'm like, I am one super impressed Two, Um, I think if you are a merchant Marine fan, you want FDU Florham to do as well as humanly possible. Um, you know, we talked with Jimmy Robertson way back at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, about what he was, uh, what he was trying to build, what he was trying to do is, uh, taking over that, uh, program being elevated from offensive coordinator to head coach. And of course that's a former division three quarterback as well, but, uh, just super impressed with, uh, what they did on Saturday and, uh, pretty impressed with what they've done so far this season at uh, starting out three and one. Yeah. And Weiner came into the game, they were four and zero, and they looked really good through the first month of the season. But this was one of those sort of classic games where a team that is favored, just they sort of start slow. They can't get out of their own way and they never really get going. Uh, Widener's first three possessions, they go fumble, three and out, interception. Form is up 10 to zero. And the Pride just never found any traction. Uh, the, the Pride were limited to just 213 yards of offense. Connor Perez for a wide receiver for the Devils. He caught nine passes for 166 yards and two touchdowns. He leads the Mac with eight touchdown receptions. Who knows where this might lead for FDU Florham, but if you can manage to not turn the ball over eight times to Del Val, you got a shot. We're setting the bar super high. Try not to turn the ball over eight times. More on that coming up in just a few minutes. We'd like to take this time to thank the people who helped make this podcast happen. Greg, thanks. But what I actually mean is, of course, uh, the people who donate money to make D3Sports.com happen, the umbrella and all the websites, the podcast here, the uh, D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. The hoops part of my brain just triggered for half a second there. We are in the middle of putting together the information that we need to start the D3Hoops.com preseason top 25 polls. And I don't know when I'm going to get to sleep for the next couple of weeks, but... The people who have donated and signed up to provide ongoing financial support via Patreon are making all sorts of things happen, and that includes the production of this podcast and really, you know, some of the extra things that we're able to do on the d3football.com website right now because of that. Yes, thanks to our Patreon subscribers. We have a great scoreboard on Saturdays up to date. We have great features happening more and more each week, it seems like. I, I try to tweet out the stuff that we do during the week on Saturday mornings just for people to check out before they get to their games. Um, and my, my tweet stream on Saturdays is getting longer. So we're, we're getting more features out there with Joe Sager and Brian Lester. They do a great job. We had Riley Zayas last week. Uh, it helps, helps keep us going here on the podcast, helps keep our features going. And all of that great content that gets you ready for sort of the the, the meat of the Division Three season. If you are into that and you are into helping this 
process continue. We keep getting new people signing up. Thank you for doing that. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash d3sports, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash d3sports. You can donate as little as even $3 a month, which I suspect you probably wouldn't even notice missing. That would be like half of uh, half of your coffee order every morning for one morning. You could pay three bucks a month and support us via Patreon, so please do so. Now we're joined by Mike Sirianni, the head football coach at Washington and Jefferson. His team victorious over Geneva on Saturday, but in a manner that might have surprised some people looking at the scoreboard. Coach, obviously those guys running that option offense. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how that game went for you guys. Well, I mean, it's something we never see. So, you know, it, it just presents a problem for us that... You know that that's kind of unique. We just we just never see that type of type of offense. It's hard for us to get a look uh, um, from our, our a scout team. Actually, our defensive coaches had to be the quarterback. So, and we know that they're capable. I mean, listen, I know that when they don't turn the ball over, that's a hard offense to stop and 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 to contain. And they really they only turned it over really once against us in the last play of the game, and we were able to preserve. So we we knew the challenges. We know them very well. We have a lot of respect for, for Coach Demarco on the program. Um, but that that's a challenging week for our for our players just because it's something we don't see. We have to change our defense and, and do some things that we don't do. What's it like on the sidelines when you guys are struggling like that? Like, how do you guys how do the players talk? How do you guys talk to the players? I mean, honest God, and I said this to, to my one assistant coach after the game. I don't know if it's because it's a veteran team, but I, I really know even when we were down 20 to 10, I really felt that we were going to win the football game the whole time. I know every coach is supposed to say that, um, but I really felt that, you know, we were going to make a play uh, at the time that we needed to, to win the game. And we were able to do that. We, we, you know, we know people are going to take away Andrew Wolf from us. We understand that, but, but, when you don't double him, we're going to go to him. Um, and, and we were able to do that twice, once to, to score our first touchdown, then later at the end of the game. Actually, they were doubling him, but we, we figured out a way to get him free. So, you know, when when you're going to let us, we're going to throw him the ball, and it was just a matter of time before, before we were able to, to get him um, free. And um, obviously he made a big catch, and we were able to win the football game. I was going to say, if that's them bottling him up, that's still, what, seven catches, 85 yards, and two touchdowns, still pretty good day. Yeah, I mean, and he's got to be patient. And I, you know, he's he missed games two and three um, with, with a little injury, and you know, he came back last week. And Case really, really took him away. And he's just got to be patient. Hopefully, teams aren't going to be able to do this the whole year if we're able to run the football. But that was the one thing I was a little disappointed about yesterday. Is I, I was proud of our team in the first four games, even in the John Carroll game, we didn't have a lot of success running it, but we still kept running it. We still kept running it, running it, running it. Yesterday, we got away from it a little bit. I don't know if we panicked a little bit, but like I said, um, you know, it was a game where, you know, looking back on it, I'm glad that something like that happened to us to come back from a two score deficit um, and able, able to persevere. Tell us a little bit about how the conference is this year. I mean, obviously, you guys, first off, almost everybody played a full spring. This conference has gotten really good at the top over the past couple of years. Uh, Westminster's been great. Grove City's made big steps forward. Carnegie Mellon's always been solid. Now St. Vincent looking like it's on the way up, that sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about what the pack's like right now. Listen, it's a little top-heavy. The, the the bottom teams have some ways to go, and, I, and I'm confident that they, they will be able to do that, but it is top-heavy. Um, and like you mentioned, the teams, you know, Carnegie Mellon, Grove City, Westminster, St. Vincent with a big one yesterday, obviously it makes it challenging. You know, it's always the nice, the thing about us, it's always been us. And, you know, it's been, you know, it was us in Waynesburg in the early 2000s. And then all of a sudden it was Teal. And then, you know, obviously the rivalry with Thomas Moore, that, that was a great rivalry that, you know, that was fun with coach Hilbert, not coach Hilbert and I are actually real good friends. Now we weren't when we played each other, um, <laughs> Uh, and now it's you now then it was case. Um, so it's always been someone else, but it's always been us. So we're proud of that, but we're also weary of, you know, the, the other teams are getting better and we're going to have to bring it like you saw every day. I mean, the Geneva team is a dangerous team. You know, they showed it last year when they beat Grove city in the spring. So, um, it's, a, we always got to be ready to play. And obviously this week with St. Vincent beating case, we're, we're going to have to be ready again this week. St. Vincent and then Westminster, then Grove City, and then Carnegie Mellon. This is a that's a big stretch for you guys, four games in a row. Yeah. Um, we're just glad to get be home. I mean, we were talking to the kids the other day. Where our last 10 games, including the ECAC game in 2019 and the spring, we played eight road games um, out of our last 10. So we're just happy to, you know, St. Vincent home, homecoming. You know, hopefully we can get, get you know, a big crowd and, and see. I love homecoming because you get to see all your former players and, and see what they're doing and things like that. But hopefully we're just looking at St. Vincent. Um, 
playing at home for, for the third time in, in the last 11 games. And, and then after that, we'll, we'll take the bye week and hopefully get a little healthy and, and worry about that stretch. Because you're right, that stretch of, of Westminster, Grove City, Carnegie Mellon is going to be a bear for us. But we scheduled hard in the offseason to, to, you know, we or excuse me, we scheduled John Carroll. Um, we've scheduled Wittenberg. We've scheduled St. John Fisher, who when we schedule them, we're, we're, we're winning to, to, to help us with those types of games. So hopefully that will help us down the road. I thought it was interesting to hear Coach Sirianni talk about uh, some of the issues they have with Andrew Wolf getting all of the attention and finding ways to get him open. It sort of seems like WJ's offense this season has been feast or famine based on how well they can get the ball to Andrew Wolf. And, you know, the, that pack schedule is, is tough down the stretch for them. They've got some big games left, and they're really going to need to find a way to either utilize Andrew Wolf or get somebody else involved in that offense to, to get them going because they, you know, they did, they did win a game against Geneva. Geneva's challenging. Um, but you know, they're going to need to be a little bit better against Westminster, for instance. We'll check back in with Mike Sirianni in a little bit. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, and my game ball is going to Delaware Valley safety Blaine Netterman. So Keith would have given game balls to the entire Delaware Valley defense, but 11 game balls in this economy? I feel the need to single out a particular member of the Aggies defense, which came up huge in a 32-7 win Saturday at Lycoming. And I wanted to spotlight DelVal because of the six takeaways, the two defensive scores, and the other interceptions that placed DelVal's offense in a position where scoring was actually possible. Netterman had one of those. Let's listen as we hear the call from Gordon Mann for Delaware Valley Athletics. Shimori takes a snap, rolls to the outside, passes picked off. Picked off by the Aggies. This is Blaine Netterman. 20, 15, 10, 5, rips through the tackle and is down at the 3. Blaine Netterman read it perfectly, took it away. Shimori has thrown three interceptions now in his last four passes. And the Aggies have it first and goal from the 3. That pick set Delaware Valley up on the three-yard line where four plays later, they were in the end zone. Aggies have a, a lot of offensive issues to work out. Three missed extra points, just 106 yards through the air, but five interceptions from the defense, including the two by Netterman, helped make it look like no big deal on the scoreboard, and that's why Netterman gets my game ball. My game ball is going to Gallaudet's senior quarterback, Tamel Benton. Benton rushed for 232 yards on 18 carries and scored four touchdowns in Gallaudet's 42-35 win over Dean. Benton's 58-yard touchdown run in the second quarter put the Bison on the board, and his 38-yard score on the first play of scrimmage in the third quarter gave Gallaudet their first lead of the game. Despite not playing in the season's first three weeks, Gallaudet is off to a 2-0 start, and having now defeated the defending ECFC champion, the Bison may be in the driver's seat for the ECFC playoff bid. I think we had a discussion. I don't remember if it was uh, while we were recording or before or after, when, which I was wondering if uh, Gallaudet was still running the uh, the option offense. Benton, 232 yards on 18 carries, 0 for 4 passing, probably answers that question. Venturing a little further afield for the off-the-beaten-path highlight, and, and I'm not going to leave the ECFC, where SUNY Maritime had a brutal start to the season, going 0-3, including a 56-7 loss to Cross Bay rival Merchant Marine. Now, so we are no longer playing announcerless highlights on this podcast. It was funny the first couple times, and I think it was my idea, uh, but it always seemed like we were just mocking those schools that had uh, super limited resources and couldn't provide, you know, a broadcast team for their broadcasts. Uh, the privateers, they have this great scenic location for their stadium. It's right on the water on their campus. I mean, it's a maritime school, right? There's water. We get that, but it's really nice looking. Um but it's really impossible to read the scoreboard on this broadcast feed, in part because it's all backlit by the sunlight reflecting off of the East River. This is literally in New York City, folks. The Frog's Neck Bridge is like right behind you. Anyway, that's the setting for SUNY Maritime and Castleton on Saturday, where Castleton kicks a field goal late in the first half. Maritime retakes the lead on a two-minute drill drive to end the first half. Then Castleton scores twice. They go up 16-6. Maritime busts open a big play to cut it to 16-12 to 12 midway through the third. You're noting some lack of extra points, by the way. Those are multiples of six for those of you who are math majors or even if you're alone. And that's where it stays. So Maritime gets stuffed on fourth and one at the Castleton 11. Maritime 
Defensively, they just force punt after punt after punt, and then finally they put another drive together. They get completions of 11, 12, 19, and 13 yards before David Keogh hits Kevin Murphy for an 11-yard touchdown pass with 53 seconds left and comes away with the 1916 win. So Murphy made what appeared to be a Sports Center worthy one-handed catch, but you know, kind of like last week's off the beaten path highlight, not fully visible on the camera. Nonetheless, great win for a team which has struggled a little bit to start the season. The ODAC is a fairly well-worn thoroughfare on Around the Nation, but Winchester, Virginia is kind of out of the way, and that's where I'm going for my off-the-beaten-path highlight. Bridgewater raced out to a 24-0 lead at Shenandoah, but Shenandoah would not go quietly into their homecoming night. The Hornets outscored Bridgewater 34-3 the rest of the way, including this go-ahead touchdown with 27 seconds left to play. I don't even need the edge of the seat now. Here's the play-action fake going for it all. Target. Back of the end zone, and it is... Touchdown. Touchdown, Shenandoah! He made the catch! Grant Butler. Grant Butler made the catch! The Hornets have come all the way back! I had to wait because defender and receiver were fighting for the ball. Brant Butler had eight catches for 177 yards and two scores for the Hornets. That 24-point deficit was the largest deficit Shenandoah has ever overcome to win a game. So as I was putting stuff together for this podcast, I discovered an alternate version of this audio highlight, and I want to play that for everybody right now. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? This call is almost as entertaining as the, uh, the the official broadcast call you just heard. You can find this on uh, Brant Butler's Twitter. I'm going to assume it's not that Brant Butler has a social media team wandering the sidelines who's tweeting on his behalf during the game, although that would be super cool, and maybe in the uh, NIL uh, era that we're in right now in Division Three, maybe that's something that somebody will do. Anyway, you can go watch that there and not just listen to it, but uh, pretty fun. Pretty fun way for that game to end. And you get a better look at the catch, actually, from that clip as well. So Yeah, yeah. It's, it's closer. you got a direct shot at it. Although, kudos to Shenandoah because they had an end zone camera that they actually flipped to at the right time. So you could see that when you're watching the broadcast. Surprise! My most surprising result from Saturday is St. Vincent defeating Case Western Reserve 42-40. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. I just couldn't tell from the Bearcats results the first three weeks of the season that they had it in them to beat a team which was receiving top 25 votes just a few weeks ago. St. Vincent was 2-1. and one. They had wins against Bluffton and Teal, who were a combined 1-8. and eight. But on Saturday, on homecoming in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, St. Vincent scores 35 second-half points, 21 of them in the fourth quarter, to rally and win. Kudos to Nathan Sullivan. He picked off a two-point conversion pass attempt with 5.07 left in the game, and that kept Case from being able to tie the game and preserved the 35-33 to lead. And Case ended up really needing those points and chasing them later. Billy Beck breaks away for a 48-yard touchdown run to put St. Vincent up by 9. And although Case and Drew Saxon, you know Drew Saxon, if you know a Case player, that's the guy you know. He's the quarterback. We've talked about him before. They were able to put another touchdown on the board, but they were still the two points shy, and they could not cover the onside kick. So St. Vincent improves to 3-1 and one for just the second time since the program was revived in 2007. And as previously mentioned, the Bearcats go to WJ next week. My most surprising result, I'm going down to Franklin, Indiana, where Manchester defeated Franklin 27-24 to in overtime. On a day where just about everything was hard for Manchester, they had just nine first downs, 25 rushing yards. They needed 10 plays to go 30 yards to tie the game in the fourth quarter. Uh, the Spartans, and we'll revisit that bit uh, a little bit later also, did just enough to get the game to overtime and get this win. Even in overtime, Manchester went backwards, forcing Andrew Kibler to attempt this 49-yard field goal as called on Grizz TV. From 49, it's up as the distance, but it's good! He made it! He just dropped it in. Andrew Kibler wins it for Manchester, and a 10-game losing streak dating back two years is over. Manchester's won their second consecutive game at Fott Stadium, and Franklin falls to 2-2. Two and two. That kick snaps a 10-game losing streak for Manchester, which spans the first three games this fall, five games in the spring, and two countable games that Manchester squeezed in last fall. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. 
But that may be the most incredible stat. Lots of things are not my stat, but this is my stat of the week. It might be a little esoteric, but it is about apparently how hard it was for St. John Fisher to bring Brockport ball carriers down on Saturday night. The Cardinals had just 23 recorded solo tackles all night and 74 assists for a total of 97 tackles. Jalay Code was perhaps the toughest to bring down, or at least he was certainly the one who worked the hardest for Brockport in its 34-7 win in the Courage Bowl in Rochester, New York. Uh, Code had 45 carries for a career-high 240 yards and three touchdowns. That's a hard-working five yards on a cloud of rubber pellets per carry. No wonder the Fisher defense needed so much help. They were on the field for more than 40 minutes in that game. Tackle leaders for St. John Fisher on Saturday night, Evan Strasberger with 17 tackles, two solo, and Joe Michia with 16 tackles, just one solo. And a thank you to all the schools who posted box scores promptly from Saturday games. We had 94 box scores to choose from out of 111 games for this stat of the week, which is pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. The Paw defeated Hiram 57-7 on Saturday, which is not my stat. The Tigers put this one away comically early. After a long kick return to open the game, the Tigers opted for some razzle-dazzle, running a double reverse pass for a touchdown on the game's first play from scrimmage. After forcing a Hiram punt, DePaul ran one play, a run for zero yards, then scored on a 64-yard touchdown pass from Chase Andres to Jalen Smith. But the Tigers were just getting started. On Hiram's next possession, DePaul linebacker Ethan Lowry stripped the ball away from Hiram running back Gabriel Hoskins, recovered the fumble, and ran 50 yards for a third Tiger touchdown. The broadcast team from DePaul Athletics has this call on the very next Hiram possession. He's going to hand the ball to Hoskins. He's going to cut up the left side. Ball. Another fumble. Another fumble on the play. Who's got it? Ball. And another and fumble Pooler. picked up by Pooler. He's going to take it for another touchdown down the sideline. It's another This is chaos. chaos. This is another chaos. DePaul's defense is rolling. They're just taking the ball out of their hands at all costs every single play. 27-0 with 10 minutes to go in the first quarter. We might what see him win by 60 on? today. Wow. How many points is DePaul put up on the board? Oh, my goodness. Chaos indeed. DePaul scored four touchdowns while running just three offensive plays in the first four minutes and 46 seconds of the game, and that is my stat of the week. I got to say, Greg, I'm very impressed by the equal time for DePaul. Well done. I tried. You know, they actually ran that first kickoff all the way back, but it got called back for a touchdown, so they actually could have scored those four touchdowns with one fewer offensive play. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now's the time on the podcast where we go to Twitter. If you know how Twitter works and you know how this podcast works, then I don't need to explain it. We got the question. This is from John Kerzy. I'm sure I've butchered that name. It's at John K. Prof asking, biggest pressure play of the season so far in D3 football? Question mark. And I guess I'm interpreting this as, you know, like the uh, the the biggest in person making a play or play that was made by a team in a crucial situation in a crucial game. Um, there have obviously been some crucial games so far this season. Um, but yeah, I think that's a uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I read this question as like people making that play right at the end to win or lose a game. Yeah. Um, I think of. Andrew Kibler from Manchester kicking a 49-yard field goal in overtime or Josh Brees scoring a two-point conversion with no time left for Washington Lee to beat Randolph-Macon in a key ODAC game, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and this weekend, Wabash going for two in overtime to beat Denison on the road in the NCAC. Those are all big pressure plays because it's it's one play and that's it. When you're Especially when you're going for two at the end of a game that's, you know, that's it. You're, it's three yards for, for the whole enchilada. If I'm thinking about plays, key plays that are not two-point conversions, I don't think we have to go back too far to think about uh, Jaden Smith intercepting that uh, Kyle Jones pass at the two-yard line and the uh, four Mary Harden-Baylor in that game against Harden-Simmons. Uh, you know, Mary Harden-Baylor had come all the way back from that uh, big deficit, took a 34-28 lead, and then Harden-Simmons was putting a drive together, and this play under a minute to go on the two-yard line seals that game. Um, or back to week one, right? I mean, we've talked about uh, many times how Aurora was one yard away from perhaps getting out of St. John's with a W. Instead, Colin Franz, the defensive end for St. John's, goes in, forces the fumble. St. John's recovers it, and they're able to kneel on it and run out the clock. And then, you know, I mean, other stuff that happened uh, even just on Saturday. How about that game between Ohio Northern and Marietta? It might not be one that ends up deciding the OAC title 
or an at-large bid, but obviously a, a very key play as well. It is. Brody Hahn and the Ohio Northern Polar Bears, they get the ball back with under a minute to go, uh, trailing 33-27 to 27 to Marietta. And here's what it sounds like. Marietta 33, Ohio Northern 27. A ball across the goal line would tie it. Hahn fires for Ike. I mean, I assume in, in person it sounded a little less distorted, but very, very exciting. He, he literally talks about how the guy makes the catch and then he runs into the kicking net. There's the net behind it that they end up raising uh, to keep the football from going into the pond or lake or whatever body of water that is beyond that end zone at Ohio Northern. You know, I have heard a lot of excited broadcasters. That's on the list. That was a that was an exciting play. It was. We don't have it here, but also, if you get a chance, pull up that broadcast, listen to the extra point. It's just as exciting. It is. It really is. It's about uh, three hours and so into the game. All of the key moments are like you start at the three-hour mark, and in most cases, in any broadcast, you're you're going to do pretty much. Uh, you're going to do fine. Did I pronounce John's name right? Yes, John John Carazzi, I believe is is how it is. Okay. So thanks, John, and thanks to everybody who asks questions. If you are trying to do that, you know, you can hit us up on Twitter on Sunday afternoons, Sunday evenings when we're doing this. You talk about Division Three football using the D3FB hashtag at any time because people watch that hashtag because they want to know and talk more about Division Three football. And it's time for games to watch. And the game I'm particularly interested in in Week 6 is not a game between ranked teams, but it's one that might help voters anyway, and that's center at Trinity, Texas. So we talked earlier about that Trinity defense. Definitely going to see what they look like against Chris Shuford and uh, Birmingham Southern later in the season, but here's another chance for us to get a look at Trinity against a quality opponent. Colonels have a mobile quarterback in Trenton Dupper who threw for 196 yards and ran for 94 on Saturday. We should talk more about quarterbacks like that. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and the center defense did a number on Hendricks. They held the Warriors to 262 yards on 71 snaps. So I, of course, then expect a low-scoring game, which now automatically means it'll be like 42 to 38. Is that I'm watching UW Oshkosh at UW Lacrosse. Oshkosh won 35 to 32 against Platteville on Saturday, and the Titans will play their fourth straight road game to open this season. Lacrosse has been quietly crushing teams, and that 38 to seven win over Dubuque stands out to me. Uh, that's a thing that really good teams do. We have three WIAC teams ranked in the top 25 this week, and while my ballot is consistent with the order that the poll has, I'm not so sure that our order of ranked WIAC teams is correct. Uh, this game will provide some clarity. The proverbial roulette wheel is spinning. We've got 97 games on Saturday. Our random number is 89. We've been rolling a lot of high numbers and talking about a lot of West Coast games because then as we go through the list, it's basically sorted by kickoff time. And when you get to the 89th kickoff time of week six, we end up with Whitworth at Linfield, which is, um, you know, a game we ought to be talking about anyway. So that's pretty helpful. Uh, you know, Whitworth comes into this game, of course, ranked very highly in the d3football.com top 25 they come in this weekend at number 18 and of course linfield one of the big movers in a week where nobody dropped out of the poll they moved up from number nine to number seven and uh is that enough time have i have i stalled enough we have to of course we're going to preview this game just out of uh out of thin air and then we're going to come up with a rivalry uh, trophy for it i already have the rivalry trophy if you remember the 2019 game Remember the 2019 game between these two schools? It basically ended in a way that I'm pretty sure if they had uh, gone on any longer, they would have had to bring all the uh, cars around the end zone and turn all their headlights on. There were no lights at uh, at the Pine Bowl at Whitworth. So I think we have to call this like the Twilight Bowl or the Twilight Trophy, something like that. Yeah, so Linfield, they have been dominant. Like you said, they are, they've been big movers in the top 25 all season. They've been dominant so far. They've scored 56, 51, and 56 points in their three games. 
and they have really been unchallenged. They have dominated start to finish in all three of their games. Wyatt Smith broke Linfield's all-time completions record on Saturday, and when you start breaking Sam Riddle's records at Linfield, you're doing <laughs> yeah. something pretty special. Uh, Whitworth, you know, they have – they're undefeated. They've kind of been moseying their way through it. Um, uh, they played Lewis and Clark last weekend, and they trailed in that game in the second half, and they they poured it on in the second half and ended up winning by a fairly comfortable margin, but it took them some time to get there. You know, Linfield to me, and I've talked about it earlier in, in this season in, the, in these podcasts, Linfield to me looks like the Linfield teams that we used to see in the semifinals and the quarterfinals on the regular. And I I like Linfield in this one, but this is a big rivalry game. This is This is really it for the NWC. I don't see anybody else in the NWC that matches either of these teams. So, you know, we're... This is this is a big game, and Linfield's just been a juggernaut so far this season. So they're going to play for, of course, uh, preeminence in the Northwest Conference standings. Uh, this will be at Linfield. Uh, it will be also, of course, for the Twilight Trophy. That's what we've uh, dubbed this game. If you want to remember more about that game and hear me and Keith talk about it, that was podcast number 258. Also, that was that Central Warper game that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. So... Um, you know, fun, uh, fun facts there. If we can remember all the way back to 2019. It's time for On the Spot. Okay. This week on the spot, we have four games which feature teams that have not won yet. I'm calling this is the something's got to give on the spot. And all right. These are some challenging games to think about. We've got Bates at Tufts. We've got Luther at Simpson, we've got Beloit at Knox, and we've got Teal at Bethany. I'm going to start with uh, Tufts over Bates. I think, um, you know, Tufts uh, looked pretty good on Saturday against Amherst, just not enough to uh, to come away with that W. Bates has been looking pretty good this season as well, though. You know, late coaching change in somewhat dramatic fashion. Uh, the Bobcats looking all right, but I'm going to take the Jumbos over the Bobcats. Also, you know, depending on the cage in which they are fighting, I might take a big elephant over a Bobcat as well. So maybe that's going to be part of it. All right. So Luther at Simpson, Keith would be making all sorts of references here. I am just going to pick the game straight up. I thought Simpson uh, bounced back really nicely from giving up their second 80 spot of the season. And I'm going to take uh, Simpson over Luther here. Also, you know, if this game were on the blue turf, in Decora, I might think otherwise, but uh, this is a little less uh, a little less mind blinding. Uh, Beloit at Knox. I mean, Beloit just lost to uh, just lost to Grinnell this week. Um, I know Knox. I have to take Knox. So in that game, and then Bethany at Teal, or Bethany hosting Teal. This is the tricky one. So like, I have watched a lot of Bethany football this year because Bethany's live stats haven't been working. So. And their broadcast, uh, in order to find out, you know, what quarter we're in, I have to watch, I have to watch it for quite a while to kind of figure things out. So I spent a little bit more time on Bethany football than I would prefer, or than I would normally have done in the course of a regular Saturday. I'm going to take Bethany over Teal. Teal, you know, they haven't won a game since literally the third week of the 2017 season. Now that was against Bethany. It was a 28-13 win at Bethany on September 16th of 2017. But I'm going to take Bethany here, which I guess means I I see that I've taken four home teams to clean sweep. And maybe that's what you need to go by when uh, you when you uh, when you don't have any wins to, to speak for. You send, send the home teams, uh, the home crowd happy. Good on the spot. Ready to flip this around? All right. Okay. So my game for you is called the Come a Little Closer game. And what I'm looking for is I'm going to give you three pairs of games and you are going to tell me which of these two pairs of games is going to have the closer score. So we're talking about margin of victory, you know, just straight math. And then you're a little greater than, less than, all these things that we learned in first grade. Good? Mm-hmm. All right. First pair of games is going to be Rowan against Kane or DePaul against Wittenberg. Which of those games is closer? I think... I'm gonna say that I'm gonna say that DePaul versus Wittenberg is gonna be the closer game. I think Rowan is. I think Rowan is gonna get 
Kane pretty good. I think Rowan is going to really win that game by multiple scores. If they play, you know, Ro- we need to get Rowan to play two halves of football. They might do it against Kane, although Kane just Kane just beat CNU. Just beat Christopher Newport in overtime. Yeah, that's why I uh, that's why I pulled them off the list here. They got off the Schneid, for example. They did indeed. DePaul at Wittenberg, that's going to be a really good game, I think. Wittenberg, Wittenberg, by the way, if you didn't see this, sir, pulled one out of the hat against Ohio Wesleyan on on Saturday. Um, this is, you know, maybe not the best Wittenberg team we've seen. DePaul, we talked about earlier, they're scoring in all manner of, of wild ways, but going to Springfield and winning is difficult. We'll see if DePaul can pull this off. I think that's going to be a close game back and forth. I do think DePaul might win that game, but it'll be close. It'll be close and closer than Rowan versus Kane. We're going to go the opposite direction now. It's uh, these two games are going to be either John Carroll Capital or Mount Union Wilmington. Oh, this is this is where we need like the OAC pick and board guys to weigh in and um. Man, capital is capital has given up a lot of points. Mount Union against Wilmington, it's going to be a that's as much as Mount Union wants to win by. Um, I'm going to say that the closer margin here is going to be Mount Union Wilmington. I think JCU Capital is going to get into like the 70s, and Mount Union Wilmington. Mount Union might throw the anchor out a little bit sooner than that. Yeah, I think that if we were to go back through the archives, we would find like a 91 to nothing John Carroll capital game, right? And um, Mount Union would be highly unlikely to do that just in general. Okay, last game of this list is going to be, here's your pair. It is Catholic at WPI or Morris against Finlandia. Catholic WPI in the new Mac, I think is going to be a fairly close game. Catholic having a decent little season here, um, making their, making their alums proud. I hope, uh, Minnesota Morris at Finlandia. I think that's one that can get a little lopsided. Although Finlandia did just have a 16, 13 game against Northwestern. So seeing some improvement from Finlandia, but I'm going to say Minnesota Mortis beats Finlandia by more than the margin of victory in catholic wpi which i which might be kind of a pick'em game yeah and i don't think you have to pick a winner so we're good yeah i i don't know what to make of i mean finlandia yeah finlandia going to northwestern and only losing 16 to 13 i don't and admittedly with a touchdown at the end of the game to make it closer nonetheless generally i think we would have not predicted that northwestern finlandia would be within you know, 10 points at the end of the game, let alone three. Yeah. I think holding Northwestern to 16 points. If you're Finlandia is, is good. Uh, last week I asked Greg, as we do our spot check to pick winners in three games, uh, also to style his answer in the form of an MIAC mascot where the St. John's Johnnies and the Augsburg Augies and the Gustavus Gusties and the like call home. Greg per- correctly picked Wheaton over Washu. Sorry. He picked the Wheaties over the Washies and then the Howies of Howard Payne over the Sullies of Sol Ross State, but he picked the cases of Case Western Reserve over the Vinnies of St. Vincent and did not get to run the table. Uh, how did I do? Pat, I asked you to identify who would win more games on Saturday, Spartans or Knights. You like the Spartans, and you were right. Spartan mascotted teams won three games, Aurora, Dubuque, and Manchester, as we talked about earlier, while Division Three's Knights won just one. Carlton defeated McAllister. All of the other Knights lost their games. Knights went one and four on Saturday. Speaking of the Eagles, we're going to check back in with Mike Sirianni. When you guys talk shop in your family as football coaches, what's that like? And, you know, obviously Nick getting the job as the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. And I guess for you on the Steelers side of the state, what's that like also? <laughs> well, to me, he's still my little brother. He's still, you know, and it was funny. I was, you know, I had Coach Karras, uh, Larry Karras, talk to our team this year at our one of our, our joint practices with them. And that's what he said. He's like, to me, it's still little Nick when you played running around, you know, 
with your jersey on. I mean, to me, that's what he still is. I mean, you know, we, we, my older brother or my middle brother and I got really got on him this summer at a couple places we were at at home. And someone came up and asked to take his picture with him. And oh my God, did we ride him? So to me, he's still. <laughs> He's still my little brother. Um, you know, I, I talk to him once or twice a week. You know, we talk shop a little bit. You know, he asked, yeah, honest to God, he asked me some questions about play calling. And obviously, we I asked him some questions. So, you know, it, it's it's a great relationship in terms of that in terms of that um, thing. I mean, what what people don't understand is I have a middle brother who won multiple state championships in New York state. And I think 2008, 2009, he actually took another team to the state championship. So yeah, we won a lot of games at W and J my other brother, Nick's an NFL coach, but shoot the best coach in my family is Jay. Okay. He's won two <laughs> state championships. He's a Mount Union grad too. So it's, it's a neat experience. I think my dad really enjoys it. He'll, he'll come to W and J for a game and then drive to Philly um, that night, you know, to, to watch, to watch them the next day. So it, it's pretty neat and it's pretty surreal to watch him on TV. But to me, it's still, he's, still my little brother i have thoughts let me tell you i have thoughts first off kudos to doug cummings of gettysburg who kicked a 55 yard field goal saturday for the bullets against muhlenberg that kick alone obviously not nearly enough to get the job done against the mules who are still alive and kicking for themselves at four and one but it's still not only a school record but it beat the Centennial Conference record at 52 yards, and it is the longest field goal recorded in Division Three this season, three yards beyond the 52-yarder that Jack Meyer connected on for UW-Stout in Week 2 against St. Norbert. The two-point conversion is so much fun. Washington and Lee exclusively went for two in their win against Hampton-Sydney, but the decision wasn't as clear-cut in Granville on Saturday. Dennison scored a touchdown with 22 seconds to play to pull within one point of Wabash. Big Red head coach Jack Hatem initially sent his offense out to go for two and the win in regulation, but changed his mind after a Wabash timeout. Dennison took the conventional point after and sent the game into overtime. Dennison scored first in overtime, taking a seven-point lead, put the stress of the two-point conversion onto Wabash head coach Don Morrell. Wabash scored their touchdown in overtime. Coach Morrell opted for two and no more overtimes. Little Giants scored on a nifty little rollout to the right, throw back across the field to a wide open tight end to win 39-38. I love seeing teams go for two and win at the end of regulation or in overtime. These one play for all the Marvel situations are about as exciting as it gets for me. And I think too, the way the overtime stuff has changed, you don't want to get into these later overtimes. You want to end it in the first couple of overtimes and it makes total sense to try to do it that way. Best dual threat quarterback? Someone threw out this question on Twitter over the weekend. Looking for praise for Merchant Marines' Ian Blankenship. Uh, Blankenship, of course, in the Mariners, off to a 4-0 start. He was 2-for-10 passing on Saturday for 50 yards. And he had 21 carries for 196 in that win against WPI. I just went through and looked for some other dual threat quarterbacks. I think if you heard the name of anybody on Wilkes, it might be Jose Tabora. He became Wilkes' all-time leading passer on Saturday. He went 18-for-28 for... 220-some yards through the air, and he ran for 120 yards on 21 carries in a 21-14 win against Stevenson. Tabora coming up on 7,000 career yards, and he's a guy who can obviously move the ball with his feet as well. I think Jack Lanham is actually the best thrower in an option offense right now. If you look back to 2019, when he threw for 195 yards and a score, and he ran for 139 and two touchdowns against Christopher Newport. We're talking about Salisbury. They play a pretty rugged schedule pretty consistently, and Lanham would be the guy, I think, of first as a dual threat, which in the way I think this person's describing it. Even look at uh, Brad Breckenridge for Amherst. 7 of 11 passing for 120 yards, and he ran for all three of his touchdowns, his team's touchdowns in a 24-21 win against Tufts on Saturday. That's 16 carries for 103 yards. That's a good number of guys there. And I only looked at the box scores for Region 1 and Region 2, so a lot of dual-threat quarterbacks out there uh, west of the New Jersey Turnpike, frankly, that we didn't even talk about here. There's a, there's a number of them. As we mentioned Whitworth and Linfield earlier, but there are more examples of key, often definitive conference games that will have been played by the end of Week 6. Central and Wartburg, Wheaton and North Central, Western New England, Salve Regina, Mountain Union's entire September OAC slate, uh, there's going to be plenty of drama left for weeks 10 and 11, but I'll be missing some of the conference championship drama from a lot of places when we get into November. 
And I'm going to end this one on a shout out to Grinnell. So they won a second Midwest Conference game for the first time since 2013. They were the ones that defeated Beloit, as I mentioned earlier, that score 40 to 13. This is baby steps forward, obviously, for the Pioneers. They beat Lawrence two weeks ago. But there are a couple more winnable games on the schedule for a team which had to call a pause to its program in 2019 because it could no longer suit up enough players. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 288, released on October 4th, 2021. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout the season. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, telling a classmate, a fellow alumnus about the show, or you can do the thing that every podcast says, right? You could go rate us and review us because that makes more people find it. At least that's what they tell us that the algorithms do. I have no idea, but we love the reviews. Thank you for that. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well throughout this podcast, and you can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Mike Siriani for joining us. Thanks to Aaron Thompson, Sports Information Director at Washington and Jefferson. And thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on d3football.com. That's Keith McMillan. And thanks to my co-host, that's you, in the other window, Greg Thomas. Thank you. You just waved. Thank you. Take it easy. What's comical is my inability to get through this segment. (laughs) And if I put that in, then I probably have to leave in some of my stuff about uh, Twilight, although I don't know a damn thing about those books. Or movies? They're movies? Movies and books? Bella and Edward. Right. I've just screwed up my algorithm all to hell by searching for Twilight. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. <laughs>